The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And as always, an interesting week on uh, in technology. We're going to talk a bit about the technology, which we're going to see at the Super Bowl game tomorrow. And we'll talk also about the IRS face recognition program that actually never got out the door before it was canceled. And yet again, the CIA has been caught collecting data on Americans without authorization. And the AirTag stalking problem is still there, and it's being used actively, and Apple's trying to fix that. This week, we're going to feature Philip Rosedale. He's best known as founder of the virtual world Second Life. This was the original metaverse that he invented over 20 years ago. And he's come back to Second Life to reboot it and compete with Mark Zuckerberg's meta, Metasphere. So, and of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. We got an email from Tom Shum. Dear Tech Talk, this article is one of many of talking about doomsday scenarios. America races to avert the quantum apocalypse. Now, by the worst estimate, we'll have a, an optical computer, that a quantum computer that can, um, that can actually break encryption in five years. And it may be as long as 15 years, just depending on the development, the rate of development of the technology. Now, Fortunately, the National Institute of Science and Technology, NIST, has established a post-quantum cryptography standardization program to define safe algorithms after quantum computers are deployed. The newly published standards come out in 2024, but the program uh, really doesn't have much time to get launched. What do you think, Tom Shung? Well, Tom, um, in the case of an attack by a future quantum computer with its power to decrypt existing encryption systems, uh, it would be catastrophic for the current internet as we know it, if we keep the same algorithms, because all the encryption could be broken. They could read your email. They could get into a secure socket layer. They actually could, uh, you know, break public private T encryption because that public 
private key encryption, which is the basis of encrypted communications, is sort of based on the fact that it's very difficult to calculate a particular number. If you take two giant prime numbers and multiply them together and get another giant number, it's very hard to compute the two prime numbers that generated that number. But it takes now, a lot of computing power. Yeah, so the and, idea is that quantum computing is just exponentially greater than anything we have right now. So it's just going to be able to do so many more calculations and come up with the correct one. Is that pretty much it in a right. nutshell? Yeah. Like right now, to, to do that calculation might take uh, 100,000 years. With conventional computers, with a quantum computer, it could take a minute. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, and so the, the public private key encryption is, would, would be absolutely broken. Now, there are other mathematical tricks that are much more difficult to reverse engineer. And that's what NIST is working on. There are actually six initiatives that they're, that they're, that they're working on to find out which one is going to be the easiest one to implement. They've got research teams working on all six, and they believe they'll have a quantum-proofed encryption uh, by the year 2024, which would be long before the quantum computers are launched. You see, right, but the reason they can't really launch them to scale is as, as they add more and more nodes to the quantum computer called qubit, it's harder to keep them all in phase because you actually have to keep all of them in phase because you're basically entangling quantum states. And so as you add more and more nodes to the quantum computer, keeping them in phase long enough to do calculations is becoming the problem. So stability is the real issue, and there's a race now to get these things more stable so they can scale them to larger size. And they haven't achieved it yet, but people are projecting between 5 and 15 years. And is we there also a, a, I'm sorry, is there also a, a, a power issue here? I mean, these must really be eating up a lot of power, these quantum computers, once we get them going. Or is that not the case? No, uh, they they don't. Unlike unlike conventional computers, you got to you know run a lot of CPUs in parallel, which yes. use a lot of power. Uh, these these don't take much power. You're entangling quantum states. What takes the primary power is you've got to cool the quantum computer down to near absolute zero. So most of your power is going into cooling. Uh huh. And the actual optical process that does the computation hardly takes any power. Because mm -hmm. you're just getting uh, quantum waves interacting with each other in this in this very cold space. So if it doesn't take much power, why is it heating up so that you have to run it so cool at such a cool temperature? Because just it, quantum instabilities. Uh huh. It just it's the nature of the beast. Quantum instabilities are what you know, it loses face. So they've got to get down to absolute zero. So there's no instability. There's no thermal vibrations, and that's the only way that they can really achieve the uh, phase lock over many, many qubits. And so most of it, but, uh, but then you can scale these things up without much more power because you can, once you've got the, 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 uh, the, the cryogenic system working, you can simply get more qubits in there quite easily and ramp it up easily. Mm -hmm. So... That's the big drive is on right now. It looks like China has the largest quantum computer with the most qubits now. So it's a there's a big race between uh, Eastern technology and Western technology. We got an email from Arnie in Colorado Springs. Hi, Doc, Dr. Schertz and Andrew. As a matter of curiosity, why doesn't the Tech Talk website run with HTTPS? That's secure socket layer. 
I know your your main site does, but not the Tech Talk site. Well, Arnie, uh, you are right. We're just running straight uh, unsecured uh, connection to the Tech Talk type, but there's no logins on that site at all. So there's no reason. There's nothing to secure. It basically people just go to the Tech Talk site, look at the look at the podcasts, and uh, and listen to them. So uh, there was really no reason to do that. But uh, now that you've brought it up, I'm thinking I may have my IT, IT team add that to the to the uh, to the to the website because it does seem to make sense. We got an email from uh, Bob in Maryland, dear Doc and Andrew. I came across this article, which is kind of an advertisement for Activity Pub. The author expresses some skepticism about Web 3.0, uh, as I guess Elon Musk has done. What do you think, Doc? All the best, your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, that was an interesting article, and. Uh, <clears throat> You know, I mean, basically, upshot is that Web 3.0 is a is a hope for utopia, hoping that every man is gonna is gonna host a computer in his house and be part of a distributed network, distributed internet, distributed storage platform, and he just think that's never going to happen. He says there's there's been software out to do that for a long time, and it doesn't happen because it's just not human nature. Uh, and so that may be right that Web 3.0 dream of having a, an internet which is hosted by people around the world rather than by companies, that may be a hope for utopia. But the article missed the main point about distributed ledgers. That is a powerful technology. Now, Web 3.0 does use distributed ledgers for sure, but distributed ledgers allow you to record things and they are immutable. They cannot be changed. For instance, I had a friend who owned a house in Pakistan, and uh, somebody simply just went down to the courthouse and changed the deed, and it was no longer his house. Uh, it took him almost two years to get the house back and almost $50,000 in legal fees. That's because the central records for real estate transactions are not immutable. Anybody can go in and change them. However, if that transaction had been stored in a blockchain, nobody could change it. Not even a corrupt politician could change it. So that's very powerful. Now, the, the article said that you cannot link blockchains to the real world. I absolutely disagree with that part of the article because you could put the latitude and longitude of the, block, the uh, plot of land into the blockchain, and then you could record that transfer, and that would be immutable. I mean, how is that any different than having a piece of paper down at the courthouse recording a transaction? Uh, you know, that's also not the real estate itself either. So I think for any central authority which wants to maintain immutable records, a blockchain makes sense. How about having a blockchain for uh, academic records? Somebody can't go in and change a record. Once it's, once it's posted, boom, that D is there forever. And you can't go in and bribe the registrar to change it. So any centralized record system, I think blockchains are powerful. Blockchains, this is the first real improvement to ledgers since the Medici's introduced double-entry accounting back in Florence, back you know, in the Renaissance, 
I mean, another application for distributed ledgers is supply chain. If you want to watch the watch a how a particular product comes from the farmer, goes to the boat, goes to the truck driver, goes to the store, goes to you, you can track all of those transactions uh, via blockchain, and uh, and then you and it's immutable, so people can't tell you, oh yeah, this this box of fruit actually came from Argentina when the blockchain says it came from Brazil. So those are really valuable, valuable applications. Now, it is true that they want to apply blockchain to, say, the, uh, the, uh, to, to distributed storage, this huge storage network where you store all around the world. You've got to convince people to do that. That, that may not come to pass. I think what we have is a technology which is looking for an application right now. Web3 not, might not be the application, but I'm telling you, I believe blockchain is here to stay. And, and the reason we have cryptocurrency is you got to pay people to validate the blockchain. It's really a very clever way to get them to pay for it. And I think that concept of paying people to validate the blockchain with cryptocurrency and using the blockchain for immutable transfer storage is going to be embedded in many applications going forward. Now, Web3 may not make it. It's just a dream. But that's only one application of blockchain. We got an email from Richard in Madison. Dear Doc and Jim, I love my Android phone. However, I've heard that it's not as secure as an iPhone. How can I make my Android phone more secure? Uh, Rich in Madison. Well, Rich, uh, first of all, uh, I would, uh, I mean, a few things that you can do quite easily. Enable two-factor authentication on your Google account. Simply go find two-factor, two-FA settings on my account and set up two-factor authentication. That'd be number one. Number two, use your lock screen. That's That protects your phone from somebody getting into it. Activate my phone so you can track your phone in case you lose it. Also, disable, this is probably the biggest thing, Rich, disable unknown sources in developers mode. Uh, you go to the Google Play Store, uh, and uh, this is basically a feature of Google Play Store. This does not allow a process called sideloading, where you load an application that hasn't been uh, reviewed by Google. It's the sideloaded applications that are the biggest security risks. So simply don't allow that. So if you do all those things, don't allow sideloading, activate your Find My Phone if you lose it, use a lock screen, enable two-factor authentication, you're going to be good to go. We got an email from Lavona in Dumfries. Uh, dear tech, dear Doc and uh, Andrew, <laughs> yeah. I'm paranoid with all these smart devices around my house. And I, uh, let me see here. I'm, and I don't, I, I'm thinking they're listening to everything I say. Uh, and I'm putting a spy in my house voluntarily. What are your thoughts about this, Lavona and Dumfries? Well, uh, Lavona, we're all paranoid about devices that, that that are connected to the Internet. Now, actually, um, I, I, I'm not so worried about them because you just have to realize what they what they do. Like, well, whenever you say a command to any of these devices, it takes whatever command you've given it, goes to a central server, interprets the command, and gets back to you. Uh, that's, that's how they all work. Like if I'm away from home 
and I want to turn on my smart devices, my Hue devices, I can log on to my phone and I can turn on the, uh, the lights in my house from another location. Well, that request goes to Philips. Philips sends that request to my house and it's done there. Now, if I want, if I've got Alexa or Siri or Google Assistant, you have a voice command that you give to it that processes it and does whatever you say. Now, the fact is those devices don't listen to you all the time. They just listen for the, uh, the, uh, the trigger word, like Alexa or Hey Google or Hey Siri. They listen for the trigger phrase, and once the trigger phrase is on, they start listening, and then they only send that data back to the main server. And I, and, uh, I think that's basically uh, not too big of an intrusion. Now, even Wi-Fi, if you've got Wi-Fi cameras in the house, they're going to store those pictures on, on a cloud server, but, they're, but it's encrypted. And so, uh, so that's relatively safe. So my feeling is that the convenience that you get from these devices is, uh, is, is probably uh, worth the effort. Now, the biggest danger you have are hackers hacking into these devices. For instance, there were cases where people had baby cams in the baby's bedroom and they put on some stupid password or they just left it as the default password. And then uh, hackers scanned the internet for that particular device, put in the default password, and they could log into the baby's baby monitor and they started talking to the baby. I mean, that was a real problem. Uh, you also could do that thing. Sometimes people will put up a webcam and they won't even do a password protection on it. Or they'll use the default password on the webcam. And there are websites that you can go to which will show you webcam pictures of unsecured webcams. So your biggest danger is having weak passwords on your devices so they can be hacked. I don't think the companies are, 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 are looking at you. And... I would also be careful. There are some Chinese knockoffs of some of these devices that have very, very poor security. So I would always get a device from a reputable company that's got good reviews. And when I set it up, I'd set it up with a very strong password. And I wouldn't worry so much about them listening to when I say, hey, Google or Alexa. So that's an important thing, though, when you're doing like if you're ordering this on Amazon or whatever, check exactly where is this made and, you know, what brand is it? And before you buy it, that's right. Yeah. I would get, I would not get a, 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 you know, a knockoff that I didn't know what it was. And there's a lot of on Amazon. There are knockoffs from China. You don't know what you've got. So yeah, you really want to watch that. That's really a key. But this people hackers hacking into the device is probably your biggest uh, biggest fear, and you totally control that with your password and the security setup that you go. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Yes, indeed, we will. Stick around for Profiles in IT. Today, we'll meet the creator of a virtual world whose real estate is as big as all of Los Angeles, which is, by the way, the in area, the largest city in the United States. So that's next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. 
the need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. How do you advance your career while still working full-time? With an education that fits your schedule, Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Philip Rosedale. Philip Rosedale is an American entrepreneur best known as founder of the virtual world Second Life. That was the original metaverse that he created 20 years ago. Phil Rosendale was born September 29, 1968 in San Diego, California. At age 16, sitting with a friend at his aunt's computer, he pulled up an image of a Mandelbrot set. That's a never-ending intricate pattern. So a Mandelbrot is a mathematical pattern, and the more you zoom in, the more it looks the same. You zoom in, it looks the same. You can keep zooming in, zooming in, zooming in. Yeah, it's like the same pattern within the same pattern, and pretty much in, in, unto infinity. But the only way to really explain it is to go Google it and then find one and then do it for yourself. You'll see what we're talking and about. And you just zoom in. Yeah. So what he did, he began zooming in on an intricate pattern and he kept zooming in and zooming in and zooming in until he ran out of resolution. Then he calculated that the screen size he started with was actually now as big as the earth. And that was his aha moment. He said, you know, I could create a virtual world that's as big as the earth. That was his thought. Because if you could have a, a, a computer that could contain the world, you could create a world, a virtual world. So he kept that in mind. And that was the motivation ultimately for Second Life. Now, as a teenager, he built custom networks and databases for car dealerships. I mean, he made good money as a consultant. He earned enough money to pay for his education at UC San Diego, and he, uh, where he went to school there and got a Bachelor of Science in Physics. In 1994, he moved to San Francisco. That, by the way, is the year that the browser came out that uh, Tim Berners-Lee released the browser and he discovered the internet. Uh, he uh, 
He instantly saw its potential for virtual reality, but it needed a three-dimensional look, which computers didn't have yet. And so he still couldn't quite achieve his virtual world. In 1995, he created an internet video conferencing product, Freeview, uh, where you could basically set up a voice over IP connection. Uh, uh, the voice over IP would carry both video and audio. It was like a precursor to what we have now is Skype, for instance, or, or FaceTime. He did that back in 1995, which is really before everybody else was on it. The product was called Freeview, and it was acquired by Real Networks. <clears throat> So he was hired by Real Networks. He was VP and Chief Technology Officer. And at age 28, he was a millionaire. Now, in 1999, Rosedale went with a group of friends to see The Matrix. Afterwards, he went back to his room and he slumped in the corner depressed. The Matrix is what he's wanted to build that was his dream. No, wait, and Doc. And he wasn't doing it. We're going to ask you to be Dr. the Psychologist here for a moment. Why was he depressed, though? What was what was uh, bumming him out there? He was he was afraid that uh, the world was going to leave him by, leave him back. Like somebody already had this concept. It bothered him that somebody already had this concept, and he thought he yeah. was— Yeah. Uh-huh. It bothered him. Somebody else had the concept. Although, it you know, a, and that—the whole point of that movie is it's— humans get completely subsumed by this and it's a really bad story you know it's a bad outcome so in that sense too maybe he was bummed because he had a very positive vision for his version of the matrix yeah no that is true yeah the yeah. matrix people just get sucked into it and they totally destroy their real life right being part of the matrix is almost like a drug in the matrix in a way so he felt that he could create a virtual life that actually had a good outcome instead of a bad outcome. I think you actually hit on it, Andrew. I'll bet you he didn't like it because it was so negative. And, and he felt that, that you could actually do something good with a virtual life. So he took a million dollars of his own money and founded Linden Lab. It was named after a street in uh, Hayes Valley, which is a neighborhood in San Francisco. In 2002, Second Life launched their beta project. Uh, it was a complete virtual world, world where you could build houses, businesses, interact with others. It had a virtual currency. The full version launched in 2003. Now, what he did with Second Life, <clears throat> you could actually build things there. Second Life basically provided what he called Legos, where you could build things with Legos. But actually, in computer terms, they were primitives. So, for instance, you could build a brick as a primitive, and then you could duplicate that brick, and then you could stack those bricks up, and you could make a wall. You could uh, pay, get a board. You could get build a, a piece of lumber from a primitive and make a board. And so you could actually build raw materials that were needed to construct a house, for instance. Or some people decided to use premium uh, primitives to build sunglasses, or you could make use primitives to build um, uh, a shirt or pants or shoes or jewelry. 
and so people started building things in Second Life. So Second Life was not specifically, it wasn't a game where you have a score. It wasn't centrally controlled. It was based on the imagination of the inhabitants of Second Life. Now, what was interesting, Second Life did not make money by gathering your data and selling it to companies. Which they would didn't be like make who money doc? by sending who does you that? a live feed <laughs> like you have on Facebook yes. feed to try to get you all stirred up so you hang around. Yeah. There was no, no live feed, no data tracking. You had a subscription that you paid to be part of Second Life. Now, what did that subscription buy you? It bought you a piece of real estate. So you could get a, a, a limited subscription and you might get a what you know, amounts to a quarter of an acre. And on that, you could build a house or whatever you'd want. So people would, uh, would buy real estate. Then they would build a house. They might build a business. Uh, some people bought a lot of property and they made a beach resort. Uh, some people bought, uh, made a, like a shopping mall. There were other people that decided they wanted to build furniture that they would sell to other people. And they, so they made, uh, they made furniture out of primitives. Then they set up a furniture store and they would sell copies of their furniture to it. And so, and they, once you make one copy of the furniture, you could then sell it to somebody else, but that person couldn't sell it. Only you had the right to sell it. It was in a sense, a non-fungible token. It's, yeah, coming up with the first non-fungible token. Yeah. Or somebody decided to make clothing, and so they had dances there where you would pay to go to the dance. And so this woman would make gowns and fancy, uh, fancy clothes for the dance. And, of course, if you go to the dance, a woman does not want another avatar to have her dress. So she would guarantee that that was a unique design. And so you'd pay a little bit more for that. That would be a non-fungible token for that dress. Uh, people would pay for whatever services they have with Linden dollars and they would, they would exchange back and forth. So the original Linden dollars, people would actually say you put a $10 into your wallet in second life that might convert to a hundred Linden dollars. I can't remember the conversion rate. And then you could spend those Linden dollars and then you could buy something for somebody. They could take their Linden dollars and then cash them out into dollars. So first so, cryptocurrency. That was the first cryptocurrency yeah. that was actively being used. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And by the time it reached its peak in 2009, the amount of purchases that were occurring in Second Life amounted to $500 million a year. So the GDP of Lindenville was five. Hundred million dollars annually, which is a, quite amazing. And there were just about anything that you could find in the real world was in Second Life. They had bars, they had bordellos, they had nude beaches, they whatever you want. They had book clubs. So this is actually also a a libertarian's dream to see how society would evolve if we pretty much had no laws whatsoever. That's right. And the only rule was. You could not dock somebody. I mean, you, your avatar was completely anonymous. You couldn't, like, dox them. That would be the one rule. Because this was meant to truly be a second life. I mean, people would even get married in second life. They might have a marriage in real life, and they would find somebody they liked in second life, and they'd marry them, not even know what they looked like. They just know what their avatar looked like. And they might have babies in second life. They'd have a house. 
I mean, they'd have a whole life in Second Life. So it, it, it became uh, an interesting uh, psych psychology experiment. Now, by 2009, it had peaked out. It had, uh, in 2009, they had a, a million active users. At any one time, around 400,000 were on, you know, going around there, doing whatever they wanted to do. And, I mean, they, they had rock concerts. People played at the rock concerts. It, so it was really uh, engaging the people. There was, it was just being human. Now, a lot of people that joined Second Life weren't so perfect in real life. Some people had disabilities. Some people were very shy. And so Second Life was allow, allowed them to express an alter ego, allowed them to be something that they, that they weren't. So it, 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 it actually achieved some really good things. In 2006, Second Life uh, received the Wired's Rave Award for Innovation in Business. Now, it did fail to grow beyond its 2009 peak of around a million users. It's still about, it's 900,000 active users and 200,000 on at any one time today. It never grew because it was so complicated to, like you had to learn, like you go into Second Life, you have to use the keyboard for your, for your avatar to walk. You have to use the keyboard for your avatar to sit down or for your avatar to lay down or for your avatar to dance. So you have to learn all these keyboard strokes. And then if you meet another avatar and you want to talk to them and you want to do it by chat, then you've got to type, type in the keyboard with chat. So it's like very, it was very complicated to do, you know, to, to go around the uh, the world there. So yeah, it's a not a video curve. game in the like there's no joystick and it's not instant you have to keep typing stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's a big difference. You got to keep keep typing stuff and then they 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 couldn't they couldn't upgrade the technology because people had already bought real estate and if they upgrade the technology to different digital standards then the old <laughs> then the old real estate doesn't work anymore. So uh, and so they they have to be backward compatible and that that limited the rate that they could move forward with new technology. So they never actually launched uh, an application on a on a on mobile phone and mobile phone is where all the action is. Well, he left in 2008. He stepped down as CEO because he could see that it wasn't moving forward. And he said he wanted to, in 2009, he wanted to focus on a new project. So Rosendale released a new project in 2011, which he called Coffee and Power. Now, that was a site that enabled people to connect for small jobs and businesses. So he kind of set up a virtual interaction for business uh, where you could uh, talk to people, set up conferences. You could connect for small jobs. And, uh, uh, you know, that was sort of uh, he was trying to apply some of the Second Life technology to a new application in that new business. That didn't actually go that long. They, they shut down that, uh, that coffee and power site a couple years later, and they started a new company called High Fidelity. Now, that was a full virtual world framework. This was in 2013. His idea was, let's take these VR headsets and let's make a true three-dimensional world. So he started working on that back in 2013. Sounds a lot like Mark Zuckerberg's... Uh, metaverse now he worked on it for six years and they never could actually get a product that was saleable they never could get a product that was saleable because they they just couldn't sell the uh tell the uh, vr uh vr headsets 
at all because the VR headsets were heavy. People didn't really want to sit in a room with other people with a VR headset on. Uh, and, uh, they, uh, and so they just really could not, could not really function with that, with that at all. And, and so you they, know, uh, they, they, they the, never those... really got broad acceptance of the idea. Those headsets too, they, they're so heavy that your nose starts hurting. I mean, this is really heavy. It's, it's, yes. So who's kind of untenable to stay there wearing that for, for hours at a time. And then the idea that that the other thing is you can't use them for business because you can't type. You got this headset on your face. You can't see anything in the right. room where you yeah, are. Yeah, you can't so you operate can't a type. keyboard if you're not seeing it. Yeah, exactly. And there's another <laughs> problem with having VR headsets on if you're with people. Like if you're some tall, strapping guy, you don't mind being blocked out, uh, putting on a headset and not knowing what the other people in the room are going to be doing. But if you're a young woman... In with the in a room with a bunch of guys, you're not going to want to put a VR headset on and and not know what's going on in the room. So they found out that only about 30% of the people would even bother looking at the headset, or putting on the headset. So so they pivoted and they went to uh, and they pivoted high fidelity into directional audio because they developed they developed a lot of directional audio and. Uh, techniques and so they they developed that for uh for concerts and other things and that was uh, that was a very successful pivot but then mark zuckerberg announced the metaverse and uh and phil rosedale was listening and he said you know mark zuckerberg is going to ruin the metaverse the reason that second life was successful was that there was no agenda. People could make their own things. There was no live feed. There was no way to monetize the data. It, it was only about the users. And uh, Phil believes that Mark Zuckerberg's vision is going to fail because it's Facebook-centric. He thinks we could probably adopt virtual reality technology but do it in the same way. Do it in the same way as um, as Second Life is with a subscription, and not trying to sell, not trying to sell data, or not trying to send a stream out there. See, like what is so disruptive with Facebook? It's the news feed. If they got rid of the news feed, you log into Facebook and you just go visit your friend Joe. See what he's up to, leave Joe a message and go back. It's a very nice way to interact. It's the news feed that makes Facebook so caustic. And they they use the news feed to engage people and get them get, get them, them riled to, up. Um, and get the people to um, you know to stay on there, to click on more things. So it's he got back into the metaverse business because he's trying to fight with what the vision of Mark Zuckerberg is. Now, what he did, he, with high fidelity, you know, before, you know, you know, um, as he was developing and sort of moving this direction, they actually did, they actually did um, um, solve some of, uh, some of the uh, second life's problems. They, they tried to get a distributed computer system where they had it. They had a peer-to-peer -peer system instead of central servers. They actually had a peer-to-peer -peer setup going on. Uh, and while they were uh, setting this up, uh, they actually did host a few events. Like they hosted Futurelands, 
which was the first musical entertainment festival hosted completely in VR. It was a four-hour event. They had 466 avatars attending from 47 countries. They had live entertainment, actors, artists, musicians, across multiple stages in, in the virtual festival venue. And their high-fidelity advisor was Thomas Dolby, who performed at live at the concert. Thomas Dolby, I know who that guy is. Oh, 1982. You remember this, Doc? Yeah. <laughs> that. She blinded me with science. That's Thomas Dolby. That was his big hit. That's right. So, but still, they, they had a few events, but, but they never grew to be massive events because of the problems with 3D. But now that he's decided to re-engage with the metaverse, uh, High Fidelity has purchased some stock in virtual, in the second life, in the Linden Labs, the second life. And Phil Rosen is back at a, as an advisor at Second Life. And now they're going to reboot Second Life, upgrade the technology, move it to the mobile platform and see what they can do and try to do it in a way that it's productive. I mean, he thinks people should go into this virtual world and be happy and, and, and it should meet some of their basic human needs and it shouldn't be exploitive. So... I'm sort of looking forward to what the reboot has will be when Phil Rosen finally gets his vision. So there you go. Everything you want to know about Phil Rose, Phil Rosedale and Second Life. Okay, so maybe you've just guessed that what we've teed up for today's observations from the faculty lounge is this question. You know, is it Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse or Philip Rosedale's Second Life that will win out? So pour yourself a coffee, pull up a chair. Doc has something to say about that naturally next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University. Coming up in a moment. The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. How do you advance your career while still working full-time? With an education that fits your schedule, Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. 
Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now, what's the best vision for Metaverse? Now, if you look at Second Life, it never intersected with real life. Second Life was a completely self-contained environment that people could participate in and never have that intersect with their real life. So you might have some shy guy who's all of a sudden the lifeguard in Second Life at the beach, most popular guy on the beach. He's projecting himself there. You might have a shy librarian who decides she wants to be a stripper or something, or a furniture designer, or a clothing designer, or a real estate agent. And, and they just live that fantasy out, and they've got meaningful uh, interactions with other people that are living out their fantasies, or they find people of like interests. Now, and they'd simply pay for a subscription, and the platform doesn't try to make money on them. Or we have the other model, where, um, where people could get it free, so to speak, and then they're constantly bombarded with news feeds. Somebody's tracking where they are, what they're up to. Somebody's coming in and directing their activities. They say, well, you know, that's not allowed. This is not allowed. We're not going to allow this kind of speech. You can't have that kind of speech. That's hate speech. There, there would be a, uh, the central uh, police trying to monitor it. That's what we have in, uh, in Facebook now. Like, for instance, uh, already, even though Phil Rosen said, Ro Rosedale said that uh, sex is just regular part of human activity, Mark Zuckerberg says, well, he just doesn't approve of it. So his avatars have no legs, for instance. So he's already imposing his will on the space, and it's just going to get more and more. Phil Rosedale says that we should let the space evolve and let, and let humans create a society that is satisfying to them, whatever it might be. Uh, it's not a game. It's, uh, it's self-directed activity where you're trying to build something. Now, most of the 3D uh, environments that have been successful have been games. We got a 3D environment, you're, you know, shoot, it's a shooting game, you're flying a plane, it's three-dimensional. So 3D... It's a single user interfacing with a game in a three-dimensional environment. That, that does work. It's not clear that uh, virtual reality is going to work with multiple people in the same room. It's not clear that virtual reality will work long-term uh, for people keeping on that mask. And so you, they, we've got to figure out where that's going to go. Uh, the, uh, the real universe is going to have primitives where the, the, where the, the individuals can build whatever they want. See, Mark Zuckerberg is hiring a team of programmers to build the environment. So he will make the environment that people live in. It, everything will be controlled in Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse. The, the, uh, the universe, the behaviors, the speech, as well as the advertising. Whereas in the vision of Phil Rosedale, it'll just, it'll just be built around how societies are built as they interact and try to achieve satisfying lives. Now, I think we'll also be able to test the viability of VR. How far will it go? How, how much can we merge our real life 
with our virtual life. That's really what's going on here. So we might see a merging of real life and virtual life in business environments if we can solve that typing problem. Uh, is it practical to merge real life and virtual life and say a second life scenario, or does that, or does that augment it? We're really not quite certain how that is going to play off. But I can tell you, I mean, Phil Rosedale was using cryptocurrency 20 years ago. He was using NFTs 17 or 18 years ago. He was far ahead of the game. He's tried to use virtual reality uh, for business and failed. He tried to use it for virtual worlds and failed. Now he's going to reboot that and try to build on his experiences at Second Life and other to see where he can go. And I'm actually hoping that Phil Rosedale vision of the metaverse is going to is going to win because I don't think that Mark Zuckerberg's vision of the metaverse is going to be good for society. Mm. Doc, we got uh, 10 minutes left, so maybe we'll just keep going. There's a big game tomorrow. You want to talk there about that? There is a big game, yeah. the Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of technology at the Super Bowl game. Like CBS is going to have 70 cameras filming the Super Bowl. They only had 40 cameras last year. Now, the new camera is uh, iVision 360. It's a replay camera that can freeze any moment of play and circle 360 degrees around it and then continue the play. So there are multiple cameras that are sort of linked together to give you a 3D view, and then you can actually go around it and look at the particular play from multiple angles. And instantly, too. I mean, right right there, like instant replay. I mean, they're just going right to analyze the play yeah. immediately. Yeah. Now they, uh, they have got 36 cameras near the red zone at the 25-yard line. Uh, now that placement allows the cameras to capture the entire field and then render them together for this 3D view for the iVision 360. Now, also new to the Super Bowl this year, the pylon cameras. These are pylons that are, uh, that are basically affixed to the edge at the end, uh, the edge of the end zone. Yeah, they've had and them. they're basically uh, eight high-resolution high cameras in the pylons. Yeah, they've been using them during the regular season as far as I can tell. Um, yeah. yeah, and so, so when they've got these really close calls, is it a touchdown or not, right. they've got exactly the view to pin it down. Actually, you said t sometimes those touchdowns involve actually just knocking down the pylon, and that's your touchdown. It's really funny yes. because you'll get the pylon's view of that moment as it flies into the air. <laughs> that's right. They've even got RFID tracking built into the player's uh, shoulder pads, so they can track them on the field when they get close to something. Oh, wow. Now... Okay, the, this is going to be known, by the way, as the Crypto Bowl because of the advertisers. Now, the Super Bowl charges around $7 million for a 30-second spot. I mean, that's a lot of money. Yeah. And there are going to be three crypto exchanges that are going to be advertising at the Super Bowl. Coinbase is one exchange. Crypto.com is another exchange. And FTX cryptocurrency exchange is the third. Now, Doc, They're can you exchange? Can you, I mean, can you explain an exchange? Do you? Does that mean I have Ethereum and I want to buy Bitcoin, and that's where I go is to an exchange? Yeah. Is that, is so that what, that what they do? That you can you can essentially set up a wallet at these exchanges, and then you can link that wallet to your 
bank account or to PayPal, and then, or to a credit card, then you can fund your wallet with US dollars. And then within the exchange, you can buy Bitcoin, you can buy Ether, you can buy Polkadot uh, uh, all easily. You can buy Dogecoin if you want, if you want to really. So you can build a portfolio. This is one central place to build a portfolio of, of, of your individual mix of, of various um, cryptocurrencies. That's right. And you can, you, can, you can trade between the cryptos anytime you want. They will, uh, they'll, they will, uh, exchange, they'll do the exchange just like, just like they have in, on the stock market, where basically uh, you'll offer, when you sell it, you'll offer a price. Then you'll have buyers that will offer a price, and they have an uh, have an automated system that does the bidding, and you'll end up with a with a sale price, with an exchange price where there's an agreement between the seller and the buyer. Very much like being but, on E-Trade or something. Pretty much it's just like on exact, E-Trade. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's all worked out. It's a real trading platform, and so this is going to be the year of the cryptocurrency. There's another exchange called Binance which is actually advertising before the Super Bowl and after the Super Bowl. They're advertising everywhere except the Super Bowl. I guess they wanted to get the cheap ads yeah. outside of the Super Bowl. So this is going to be the coming out party for the crypto exchanges. Wow. If you remember back in the year 2000, we had all these dot-coms advertising. That was called the dot-com bowl Yeah, back then. And most of those companies advertised then are gone. Yeah, actually. yeah, a lot has a lot has changed in twenty years. Yeah. Now I've been trying to get to this IRS story for a few weeks yes. about facial recognition. Yes. Do you remember they uh, they had uh, they had uh, contracted with a company called ID. Me to uh, you'd send that company a selfie, and they would uh, they would use it for a facial rec recognition protocol. In addition. Once they got your selfie, they would search the web for all other instances of your face and use all those instances as part of their as part of their validation, which people didn't really know about at first. And then when you would log on to your IRS account, in order to validate that you are who you are, uh, they would have to use facial recognition. You'd do that rather than your taxpayer. ID that they give to people now once a year, and uh, and IRS said this is going to this is going to help them with identity theft, and there was a huge uproar over this. People did not like the IRS, you know, getting into facial recognition, and after Congress got involved, um, after a lot of television commentary about how bad it was, finally the IRS decided to drop the contract with ID.me and they are not going to use facial recognition for now. <laughs> That's what they said, for now. And they're going to go back to the old system of just the uh, taxpayer user ID. Now, we should point out, though, that you know you, you do not have to have a, an, an account with the IRS in order to get information or pay your taxes or anything, but you can if you want to. So that's something to remember too. This wasn't like a mandatory program before you know it, they have a picture of everybody. At this point, you do not need to subscribe to this in order to pay your taxes. Right, so yeah, you, you could actually fill out your taxes without subscribing and just send them in. But then suppose you'd wanna log on and tell them where you wanted, they, they, you might even notify that you have a, um, 
like a like refund. Direct deposit, for example, yeah. You could log on example, and give yeah. them the bank ID of where they should yes. send the refund. Yes, And that's where they had the identity theft problem. Mm-hmm. People were like stealing refunds by directing it to the wrong bank account. Wow. So now they went, so now if you log on to interact with the uh, IRS, they have quite an involved identity uh, theft protocol. And then each year they send you a taxpayer ID which they send to your home address, and you can store that and use that as a way to log on to your account during the next year. But if you lose that taxpayer ID, to get it reset, you've got to give a lot of information to prove that you are who you are. Right. Now, Doc, you promised to talk about the CIA. We've got about three minutes left. So Okay. Now, the CIA is collecting data on Americans. Two senators asked the Central Intelligence Agency to release details of a secret bulk data collection program. Senator Ron Wyden and Martin Heinrich, they're both Democrat senators, by the way, wrote the director of national intelligence, asked him to declassify the CIA program known as Deep Dive 2, the details of which were redacted from their letter. The letter was written on April 2021, but was classified until this week. The secret program is operated under an executive order which was issued by Ronald Reagan in 1981. <laughs> Long. Yeah. And it's been used to justify bulk data collection for people in the U.S., including cell phones, SMS messages, and email metadata. Now, the practice was limited by the 2015 reauthorization of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, known as FISA, which banned the bulk collection of data. However... The CIA, as we found out, did not end the bulk collection program. And they've been secretly selecting the data outside of the FISA authorization. They've been doing it without any judicial approval, any congressional approval, or even any executive branch oversight that would come with the FISA collection system. And the Senate is calling them up on it. So I hope that they're going to take care of this pronto. Well, we haven't got time to talk about air tags. I think we'll have to. Uh, I think uh, we'll do air tags. Yeah, next week. it was time to time to start thinking about wrapping up the show here, Doc. Yep. Listen, uh, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu. Check out our nursing programs, our health science programs, uh, medical uh, medical uh, assisting programs. Check out our uh, cybersecurity programs, networking programs, hospitality programs, culinary programs, business or accounting programs, all of those, and tell them that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.